Dog TV is on a mission to improve the lives of dogs everywhere with their unique streaming service for dogs to provide entertainment and alleviate stress and anxiety throughout the day. Their science-backed programming features playful animated sequences, dogs, and other animals designed to prevent boredom and provide mental stimulation. This is a great service for pet parents who are beginning to go back into offices and worry about adjusting their furry friends to their absence. Dog TV is available on several devices, including iPhone, Apple TV, Android, Roku, Fire TV, and Xbox One. Click the link in this week's podcast episode description to try Dog TV free for three days. You may choose to continue your subscription for $9.99 a month or save money with a $60 yearly subscription. Hello, party people, and welcome to another episode of Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Shopa. And folks, it has been busy. Oh my goodness gracious. So I actually recorded this episode, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago now, and I had every intention of putting it out last week, but I was in Texas. Uh, it was my first time in Texas, and uh, that place is wild. Okay, like there is a gas station that is the size of, um, gosh, it's it's like a, like a smaller Walmart, but like it's wild, dude. There are, there's a, a beef jerky bar. There is a full-on deli, a bakery, a fudge shop, like it's absurd. You can get home decor and also a swimsuit. Like the, <laughs> it was such a wild experience. Um, but, uh, it was a lot of fun. I am definitely exhausted. So I just got back. I'm recording this intro, uh, Friday and I just got back Tuesday night. And so I'm still recovering. Um, but you know, we work with what we've got. So anywho, all that to say, I would, did not have the time nor the energy to get around to putting this out last week, so I'm putting it out this week. And it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, also, exciting update. Tomorrow I will be teaching... So really, when this, uh, when this airs, I will, um, I'll be teaching my first pole class. And I'm really excited. And also a little nervous. Um, so today I'm going to be making sure that I have everything in order and um yeah we'll see I'm I I feel I feel mostly good about it um I'm obviously nervous because it's something that I've not done before and I also recognize that because I haven't done it like there's there's a lot for me to learn so I think it's going to be a really good learning opportunity and you know you just got to do it and once you do it you can start working on getting better at it so yeah yeah that's where we're at um so let's talk about today's guest she oh my gosh i really enjoyed this conversation so if you listen to the conversation with um megan the death doula i you'll you'll remember that like that conversation really sparked my interest in death and grief and dying and I know it sounds morbid and we're not supposed to talk about those things unless we're like the Adams family but uh, let's get down to the brass tacks folks like we are all going to die someday 
every single one of us you're going to die i'm going to die your your loved ones are going to die your pets are going to die um everything around us will die and it sucks right being a human and being mortal sucks and you know we spend so much time evading death and trying not to talk about it and don't talk about death because it upsets people but by not talking about it and by not acknowledging it and not connecting with it we're really doing ourselves a a disservice and it makes us far more anxious than we need to be about death and that's not to say that death is not scary like it certainly is and our primary function as humans is to stay alive so i'm not saying that it's not sad it's not scary that's definitely not what i'm saying at all what i'm saying is we need to talk about it more we need to have conversations and we need to be allowed to grieve and to connect with others and so i think that was something that i really took away from my conversation with this week's guest is how how we can better support each other in times of death and grief and how we can come together as communities and as villages to celebrate our lives and also mourn the those who we leave who we have lost who have left us so i am so excited to continue learning about about all things death um because it's really fascinating and i encourage you to do so as well and if nothing else to start having conversations and seeing you know what what do people that you love want when they die but anywho um let's talk about this week's guest she is a lovely human being and I am so grateful I got the chance to speak with her. She is a hospice nurse, a death educator, a yoga instructor, and the owner of Life at Sunset. And she works one-on-one with clients um, to kind of help support them through the death journey and their loved ones. Uh, She also has weekly online discussions that anybody can be a part of. Um, I do believe they're donation-based, and it's co- their conversations all around different aspects of death and dying and grief. And she has workshops for, you know, getting your advanced directives together. So she does a lot of cool things, and she's really passionate about having conversations about death and helping those who are going through the dying process and their loved ones and she is such a kind soul and I felt like uh, I really connected with her and it was just such a damn joy so everybody please give a fantastic warm welcome to this week's guest Maggie Compernol (laughs) well welcome Maggie I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So I've been following you on Instagram for a little bit um, because 
from my previous conversation with uh, uh, Megan, who is also a death worker, I was like, I need to follow all the death workers. Like it really changed my perspective on death and dying and mortality. Um, so I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit that the about the work that you're doing as a death worker. Yeah, thank you. And I, I appreciate the phrase and term death worker. Um, I think the the role of death doula is really gaining some ground and gaining some momentum. And while I've been trained, quote, trained as a death doula, that's not necessarily how I would describe myself. So I appreciate that. Um, so right now, currently what I am doing is I'm working mostly to pay the bills as a hospice nurse. Um, and of course, using all of that work in the death and dying realm to help inform my other work as which as more so of the death worker realm, um, which is a little bit more of my choosing. And I would probably use the term death and dying educator. And I think what I really enjoy about this role is I've had I've had these kind of neuroses over time of like, I have to be an expert if I'm going to teach anything to anyone, like I have to know everything. And something that's really beautiful about working in the death and dying realm is more people can be more exposed to death and have more, you know, um, experience and having studied it more and no one's really an expert. And so my joy and excitement is to really use my experience and um, understanding of death and what I have seen and what I have read and experienced and, and guide people in a way that allows them to touch it in a way that they feel okay doing so. And my favorite way of doing that is really inciting curiosity and just being fascinated by the whole mystery of it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess I'd never really thought about that before. Um, how nobody can truly be an expert in death, right? Because we don't, we don't really know what happens when we're gone. And that's so fascinating. I love that. And I think yeah. it's interesting that you kind of embraced that because I think that's part of what makes death so scary for a lot of us is that not knowing. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think there, you know, there are some schools of thought that would argue we do know what happens after death, whether it's someone who's had a, a near death experience or someone who has an experience where they feel that they've gone to the other side and come back. And in some Buddhist traditions, there's there's a clear step by step. Yep, this is what happens. And it's just still so shrouded in mystery. Like, how cool is that? You know? I, yeah, it's so funny. I think that death is probably like the most human experience and the most just being experience. I love that phrase, the most being experience. Yes. And I think there's this, it's, we've kind of lost something as a culture, which I think is a, a fairly dangerous generalization to step into. And I think what, what we can agree on is that death is not done right in many cultures now. A lot of traditions, acknowledgement, and rituals have been lost. And in that process, we've lost this comfort um, and this this truth of understanding that death happens to everything that is living. Yes. Right? And and how funny that we've just kind of pushed it into a corner. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Time to shed some light on that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's why I'm so excited to to follow accounts like yours 
where you bring it into the forefront. And yes, it's scary. And it's also so many other things. And it's completely natural. Um, but I want to I wanna get a little bit of history from you. How did you get started as a hospice nurse and a death worker? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll have to rewind a little bit, I think. Um, I've always been interested in kind of bigger picture things. And I've never been, quote, good at philosophy. It was always a little bit too esoteric for me. But I've always been curious. Like, I remember when I first learned how to talk, I remember going up to my dad and being like, Dad, wait a minute, if, if God made us, then who made God? And, <laughs> and I was like, what? Um, and, and so just kind of grappling with these bigger pictures and not knowing what to do with that. And um, so after college, I went to South Korea and I lived there for five years and I taught English and I loved teaching. But after a while, it got too easy and I felt like I was teaching people things that they had to learn. And one of the most profound things I got to do was to teach English to women who lived in a, um, a shelter for those who were domestically abused. And um, teaching yoga to them, I was like, oh, this is it. I get to teach people something that they're seeking. Great. And, and rather than teaching, I was sharing. Right. And I think that was more of the thing that I loved is it was a conversation. And so I left Korea, came back, went to nursing school, kind of like not into it. Everyone I talked to is like, oh, these are your interests. You should go to nursing school. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a nurse. Um, and I don't know what my resistance was to it. I think it was that idea of responsibility, especially responsibility for someone's health. But Either way, I went to nursing school, and at the same time, I was teaching yoga and seeing and just kind of thinking, like, how can I combine these two things? Like, Western medicine is so good at the physiological and, and really just failing to address all of these other things. So um, I worked on a general medicine floor, and it was not my pace. It was a circus, and I don't do well with that. I know some people love adrenaline, but like once my adrenaline runs once during the day, I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, so I switched to oncology and oncology for me was really important because it really addressed people as a whole. And still I found gaps. And also working in oncology inpatient, we had patients who were end of life or what would be considered comfort care, um, where the goals that, you know, shifted from curative treatments like chemo and radiation to, okay, let's get this person comfortable. They might not be able to um, handle a, a transport home. So here they are in the hospital. And there was something about that that I was just loved. And it was fascinating to watch the dying process in a very clinical way. Like it was just as the textbook would say the, the pulses are lost, the pulses weaken, the skin gets cold, the skin gets mottled. And there was something so much more to it than that. Like my first death, I remember seeing, I was studying Reiki and like energy work. And I swear I could see the energy leave this body's feet and start to move up to the heart and then the head and then 
like move upwards. And that's when I really just became fascinated. So from there, like in the hospital, I, I experienced burnout pretty quickly, um, but, but kept working. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh, hell no. Like I cannot, I can't do this. I'm going to hurt someone if I keep doing this, yeah. you know? So I, I got out and I, um, at the time also felt compelled to just start over. So I sold all my stuff, packed my car and, and left with no real destination, but one of my goals after leaving was I'm going to study death. And so it's been a journey into the exploration ever since and learning about how I can bring my gifts, my styles, my interests, and also protect myself with my boundaries in this work. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings me to another question because, you know, death is so emotionally charged for a variety of Mm -hmm. reasons, Um, especially when we think about family dynamics, you know, not every family is a happy family. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I imagine that you encounter a lot of that. And I'm curious, how do you safeguard your own mental health? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think, I think that in oncology, that's what led to burnout so quickly was people would use language like, well, are you like, what are your boundaries? Set your boundaries. And I'm like, but what does that even mean? You know, I didn't know, I didn't really have a mentor to help me figure that out in the hospital setting. Um, And so what I love about work in hospice and then my own education role is that I get to choose what I put out. And you hit the nail on the head. Family dynamics can be really draining for me. Um, I have found that with the actual dying human in my work in hospice, I can hold that space. And yes, it can be intense. Yeah, can, yes, it can be emotional. And I find myself having high capacity for that and high um, ability for that. But when the family dynamics start to come in, um, I just find myself like just oozing out. <laughs> I'm still in the process of really learning how to to quickly fill my cup. But what I'm learning is that I need to remove all stimuli if possible. Sound is really hard for me. So like the sound of motors and noise and traffic is really stressful to me. So going to a quiet place or even just staying in my apartment and having it be silent, um, going to the woods and being with trees, I'm finding that lying down on my back in the dirt is so grounding. It's almost immediate. So those are some those are some things I, I find that like really getting into my body and really remembering like these are my boundaries. Like my my energy and myself does not have to extend into this family, for example, or this situation, right? Like I kind of imagine that I'm containing myself in my body and my space directly around me. Um so those are those are some things, and also I'm I'm learning through language as well. I think in such an emotionally charged time such as death, people feel really helpless, and and so I I sometimes picture families just drowning in in the sheer weight of it, and just grasping for anything that they can hold, and sometimes the only thing that's there for them to grab a hold onto is me, and so. I'm, I'm learning through language. How can I say, Hey, I'm here for you. And I can't stop this death from coming. 
this is your process and I'm going to be next to you, but I can't carry it for you and nor should I. So really kind of fine tuning that language of saying, I'm here, I'm part of your tribe in this process. I'm part of the village that it takes to go through this process and no one is your everything right now. Yeah. Oh gosh. I imagine it's very hard to, to kind of find that, especially I feel like somebody who naturally wants to help people. Mm. It's, Mm -hmm. it's so hard to turn that off and be like, Oh, but nobody's helping me. So I have to do it. (laughs) Yes. It's so hard. And, you know, I think in, in healthcare, there's this kind of martyrdom complex that, that ekes into so many different roles. And I'm so guilty of it. I, I want to help people. And then I find, I, I look down some days and I'm like, oh, I don't even see the shell of myself anymore. And yeah. so for people who, who really feel called to serve, sometimes saying no feels like the pendulum is swinging so far in the other direction that it almost feels like ugly. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard because saying no means you're not doing your best. And yet that's not true. Right. Yeah. It's a matter of, and this is something that I'm working on, not aiming for perfection, aiming for the best you can do in that moment. And it's not always going to look the same. Um, Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard to say that I can't be perfect, that I can't do everything right now. And it's not realistic for me to expect that of myself. Right. And it's not realistic for others to expect it of you either. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love how in the work that you do, part of what your focus is as a coach um, is that you're asking others to put in the work. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing in the death and dying realm. I mean, there are different capacities and different things that are being asked of people. And we can't take on the whole burden of this process on our own. Right. It's really hard. It, it is. And I think that it's important that when your person dies, you do take that on. Because, um, you know, to share a little bit of my story. So my dad died a little over two years ago. Uh, in February, it was two years. And that has been so the, I spent the first six weeks before he died taking care of him. And like, that was the hardest six weeks of my life. And wow. then when he died, it was like, my world completely changed and I feel very fortunate in some ways because right after he died, the pandemic hit. So it was like what I was feeling inside was reflected in the world around me, right? My world was never going to be the same and neither was the one that I was living in. Um, Mm. So it was an interesting alignment, but I feel like I've learned so much about myself and so much about people and what it means to be human and about mortality through it. And mm-hmm. so while obviously I would love to have my dad still here with me, I'm also extremely grateful for all that I've learned from this experience. So I think like death and grief, those are things that we need to experience, but we've shied away from it so much in this Western society. Absolutely. We've we've lost and and also I'm I'm so I'm sending you hugs and, you know, anything that's appropriate on this just after the anniversary of. And thank you. There's so much there. And 
and how how human and how deep, right? In all different directions. It's not just down that you that you that one feels these things. This is such an expansive experience to be that close to someone you love at this point in time. And it's so important that we talk about it because it is a universal experience. It is a human experience, but if we don't have the language and support for it, it's no longer a universal experience. It's an isolated siloed experience. And that's not how it's meant to be in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know when I talked with Megan, she she used the word sterile. We've turned it into a very mm. sterile process. And, you know, I look at different parts of the world, different cultures, even what in the Western society we used to do. And it just looks so completely different. We're so far removed from it. But I also want to, I just realized that we never necessarily clarified what a death worker is. Um, so I'm oh. wondering if you could <laughs> yeah. tell us a little bit for people who might not know what exactly a death worker does? Yeah, yeah, great question. And I think, and the answer will be different for everyone. And that's something that I'm also really just so jazzed about this, this death positive movement that's moving forward is that there's really a place for everyone. So um, in the in the death and dying realm, as as you know, there's so many needs that arise, so many needs. And some people might find themselves considered a death worker in the volunteer for hospice realm where they go grocery shopping for the families of people where someone is dying and help them in that realm. Um, in, in my world as a death worker, um, you know, I, I do kind of have these two different roles at this moment. One is this hospice nurse case manager role and one is nurse and um, I'm sorry, death and dying educator role. And so my educator role is really just to shed some light on this universal human experience. And that's through talking about all aspects of it. And I like to think of things in this, in the terms of the elements. So let's just say we have the element of earth, water, fire, and air. And on earth, you have these practical matters and these dense matters. And so in this realm, education might, for example, include practical matters of getting your advanced directive filled out, figure out estate planning. Where should I keep all of my passwords for all of my online information so that when I die, if I die soon, someone doesn't you know, have to go through all that stress of figuring that stuff out? Okay, fine. Um, it might also look like in the physical realm, really talking about what happens to a human body in the dying process. What can you expect? What might you expect? What's quote normal? And what are some signs that someone is experiencing distress that might be mitigated with something like medications or position change or environment change? So that's more in in this kind of earth element realm as a death worker and educating people about what's the tangible. And then moving up to the water element, and this is just how my brain works. So in the water realm, a death worker might work with people on anticipatory grief or, or grief, right? The whole dying process every day is the loss of something. And what do we do with that, right? And so really acknowledging that in this grieving process, there's sadness, there's anger, there's kind of this sometimes shameful feeling of relief or joy 
all of these exist all at once in this water, watery emotional realm. And so how can we hold space for people and allow that and really just let people be as they are in these really difficult moments? And then in this fire element, like kind of moving up this ladder of, um, towards the more subtle, fire's the element of change. And what more gross and obvious change is there than watching someone in the dying process? And so again, really talking about what kind of changes are physically taking place? Um, how will this change the family unit? How will my relationship with the deceased change once they die? Um, because in a way, that relationship, there's a whole new relationship beginning after that moment, right? So what what is that going to be like? Um, and then finally, in this element of air, that's kind of the more the more subtle, esoteric, intangible topics like um, spirituality. So talking to people about, well, what are your beliefs about life after death and how how will that inform this process for you? So for example, if you think that after a clinical physical death, that's it, it's over, that might kind of color how you experience this process. If you feel that you'll go to heaven after death, that will change how you experience this process. You know, so all of these things, how can we work on understanding and identifying our belief systems? Can we create ritual right now? How can we use our, our beliefs to, to, you know, make this a, a sacred, beautiful space? So I think in this way, death workers, touch on all of these in their own gifted ways to just best be of service to people and fill in gaps that are undoubtedly there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's such a great explanation. I know yeah. it's, it's hard to wrap it all up into one, into one little, you know, tortilla. <laughs> but... Yes. And it is, you know, it's a fairly, what's, what's funny about this is it's, it's just like birth doulas, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are roles that have been around forever, but because they were lost in many parts of culture, now because they're coming back, we need to name them and label them and kind of categorize. And, and really what it is, is anyone who works in the death and dying realm. And this might also be someone who works at a funeral home and helps you decide on what kind of cremation would be best for your loved one. So it is, it is really hard to, to neatly define. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your patience and my long-winded answer. <laughs> oh no, I loved it and I also like to work with analogies, so I I thought it was really wonderful. Um Maggie, what are some some questions that you get asked when you are working with a family or maybe what are some misconceptions that people often have? Yeah. That's a great question. I think the biggest thing that I noticed, perhaps I might say like the, the largest umbrella of questions I have is, is this normal or what's normal? And again, just like the birthing process, there are certain things we might expect and the body, the spirit, the soul, the mind, whatever your beliefs are, will have its way, right? Um, so a big part of my role in the questions that are asked is normalizing. Um, yep this is okay. And the question, 
a lot of questions arise out of fear. Um, you know, if you're in a room, for example, alone at home with someone who is dying, and if that dying person is not lucid or not responsive or verbal, it's really quiet and it's really lonely. And everything that happens feels really big. It's, it's kind of emphasized by that. So you might hear a noise come out of um, their mouth or you might hear a noise come out of anything, right? And it's, you know, alarm bells can sound. And is that normal? And, and what is that? What's the cause of that? And there comes the mystery again, right? You don't know where it's coming from. And, and can we be okay with that? Can we be okay with that mystery? And in this process also, there's this, this feeling of, I can't do it, that I notice with any family members. And Frank Ostaseski is um, a wonderful Buddhist teacher. And he, he founded the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, and he's worked with many, many people in end-of-life care. And I can't remember verbatim, so Frank, I'm so sorry, but he said something along the lines of, this is in our bones. We've just forgotten how to do it. And so just reminding people, of course you feel like you're doing everything wrong. And you're not. In all likelihood, you're doing everything right. But I find a lot of questions come from this feeling of, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And my responses often look to me like you do. You're doing great. You know, may I suggest trying this or doing this? And you're doing great. <laughs> um, you know, these questions that come from fear, I think, stem from what you mentioned earlier on, which is the unknown. Um, and just assuring people that I don't know either. We don't know. So let's be here together while we figure that out. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was something that surprised me a lot about my dad dying was just how much it brought people together. I mean... It was it was really cool. So my dad, um, I, I grew up in a very small town and he was uh, a mechanic there and he and his girlfriend of 26 years, I call her my bonus mom. Um, they own their own business. <laughs> yeah. And like they were loved in the community. Um, and so just seeing droves and droves of people come to the funeral home and one of the dire wow. the directors was like, yeah, this is one of the biggest turnouts we've ever seen. And wow. yeah, yeah, I think we had it booked Kelly. for like two hours and we ended up being there like three and it was snowing and people were coming out and I felt so guilty because I didn't want to be there and I got very drunk. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. As and, it can happen, sure. I mean, I was just like, keep bringing me gin and tonics. That's the only way I'm going to get through this um, because I don't particularly like the way that we do funerals and memorials and things like that. But it was so it was so fucking cool to see all these people come out. I mean, grown men crying, people just yeah. just hugging. And it was beautiful. Oh, I love that so much. As awful as it was, it was 
it, it was so cool because again it felt like it, it it felt nice knowing that like I wasn't the only person who saw how amazing my dad was like mm. there were all these other people who not only saw how amazing he was but were willing to do whatever they could to help and so people were bringing groceries people were bringing wine people brought food for the family for his memorial I mean it was it was amazing and so yeah I think that's the way it's supposed to be done you know mm. I think that's what death is supposed to be is that recognition that we don't have to do it alone and I think we've forgotten that you've forgotten and I love that you said as terrible as it was, it was also this, mm-hmm. you know, like, I think that's the profundity of this is that it can be so many things all at once. Yeah. And all of those things are real and true. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's, it really teaches you so much about how you can hold all of these different ideas, all of these different emotions how you can make space for all of it. And it's not always comfortable. Sometimes it's so uncomfortable that I just want to claw my way out of my body. Totally. And that's also being human. Isn't it? And and finding the people to be around you who will allow for all of that. And in one moment, you might be horrified at the truth of what just happened. And then next, you might be in fits of laughter, remembering something that happened 15 years ago, and the next moment, you feel like you won't be able to move your body ever again because of how awful this feels. I mean, that kind of whiplash, just again, normalizing all of this. This is all so hard. We, I grew up Catholic, and the idea of just kind of like holding your shit together and closing the door and then losing it, Oh my gosh, so stifling. And everyone was so bummed. No one knew the rules. Everyone was like, wait, are we allowed to cry? Can I laugh? Can I like remember something funny? Everyone was just kind of like walking on eggshells all the time. And as you just illustrated, it's just, it's all these things. Yeah, yeah. It's all these things. It is. And so I was not prepared when my dad died i it was the first death i've ever experienced with someone who was that close to me you know i've had like yeah like i had like great grandparents die fortunately like well i guess my grandma did die a year before my dad um and so i mean there was that but like this was this was something else this was a very visceral feeling and I was not I was not prepared for him to die I was not prepared for anything to do with the death process I was not prepared for the grief and I'm wondering do you think there is any way that we can be better prepared for Mm. death and dying and grief oh so glad you asked that question (laughs) okay I yes I do I think that like anything that's really difficult, the more you expose yourself to it, the more you talk about it, it becomes so much lighter. Sometimes, you know, if something's difficult, we avoid it and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until it's just this thing that isn't even real. And 
there are, for example, Buddhist practices where you go, like you imagine that you are dead. Um, you go through meditations, you go to sites where people are being cremated and on funeral pyres in front of you to really look at death. And I don't think that it's necessary to start from scratch and expose yourself to a brick wall of death to start preparing. But I think what is important is at the very, very baseline, acknowledge the fact that we'll all die. And that's going to feel different in every moment of every day until, until it becomes real. And preparing, I think, will look different for everybody. I think there are, again, kind of going back to those elements, there are degrees of practical preparation. I think anyone over the age of 18 needs to get an advanced directive together. We need to learn about what CPR looks like in our bodies. We need to really understand what intubation is. I remember when the pandemic hit, everyone was throwing out intubation like it was something you just plug into a wall and then unplug when you're better. And it's so much more complex than that. And so really understanding what are these medical interventions that you might want or not want, getting a living will together, it might also just come with the with sitting with your morning coffee and thinking about, oh my gosh, all of these people I love around me will not be here forever, just like me. And so just really contemplating these things. And I think the reality is, as you experienced, I have, I have some patients who have been on hospice for a long time, like maybe, maybe a couple years or more. And so their families just kind of live, they've just gotten so used to this, you know? And even when that death comes, they say things like, I thought I was prepared. And their loved one might be over 100 years old. And so, you know, the natural order of things says this can happen anytime soon. So we cognitively understand it. And for people who have had years to get used to the idea, you, you still aren't really ready for it. But I think the best we can do is to just to start talking about it, start thinking about it. And again, the more you do that, the more comfortable it becomes. And it doesn't lose. It doesn't mean you won't be afraid of it anymore. It doesn't mean that it's not terrifying. It doesn't mean that it stops being mysterious. But it means that once you're confronted with it more directly, it isn't the first time you've thought about it. Yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah. I I love that. Yeah. Like I said, I've gotten so intrigued by death you know just from that one conversation and honestly I think it's it's helped a lot with my grief journey and yeah I think talking about it is the one of the best things we can do you know not not trying to fix it because it's going to happen inevitably it is inevitable we are going to die we are all going to die we are going to leave this body that we are in you know whatever you think happens after death it's it is what it is and and you don't have to like it no you don't have to like it and (laughs) also like yeah no I don't think there is a way to be fully prepared but I think there's a way to know that you're not alone and that this is right and it sucks and it's right 
Yep. Nothing lasts forever. What a bummer. Really? Right? Really? <laughs> yeah. And you know, something else I think about in your work, um, because I also do end of life coaching where we look at goals that people have and then step by step, how do we get there? And as a life coach, it, it can really, you know, putting on the lens of death and dying, there's a sense of urgency that begins to take shape and not necessarily this rush or this pressure or this like sort of breathness, but this like, wait a minute, am I where I want to be? And I remember there have been different points in my life where I have these flashes of, ugh, like if I die here, I'm going to be so sad. And so then I start making moves, you know? And so to, to have that lens, I think, can be that little fire under your seat to get you moving if it's, if you can't find that fire under your seat otherwise. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it can also be very like anxiety inducing because I have that a lot where mm. I'm somebody, I have so many interests and so many hobbies. So it's like, I want to try everything. I want to do everything. And also I live within the constraints of you still have to make money and, you know, you still have to keep a roof over your head and you still have to clean your apartment and do your dishes. So it's, it can be challenging to find that balance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What a drag, right? Yes. It's always hard to find that balance. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I have a lot of talks with my therapist about it. (laughs) Oh, you and me both. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just playing around with that idea um, is really, we do have one life. And, and there's joy in that, I think. Um, how, I, I don't remember where I heard the story, but something where like hell is actually living forever and everything's perfect. Ugh. Um, so this one beautiful life, right? Like Mary Oliver says, what will you do with this one wild and precious life? And we can't fulfill or explore all of these hobbies and interests that we have. And we can explore some and and still exist in this practical earthly realm. Yeah, yeah. So my next question, um, I'm very curious to hear your your answer to this one, because um, like I said, I've been exploring different like death practices from around the world and, and rituals. And so I'm wondering if you could choose one or two to like bring back into practice in our current Western society. What would you choose? Mm. What death ritual would I choose to bring back? Great question. One of them is a little bit more in the realm of grief, I think. And that is when those who are grieving wear all black. Some kind of outward signal to the community, hey, I'm having a really hard time getting my shit together I'm about to fall apart at the drop of anything. Be kind. Something that signals I'm having a really hard time, yeah. you know, just to really humanize things. Um, and also to connect people where people might say, oh, you're dressed in all black. I also lost someone this year. You know, what can I do for you? And then other rituals, my gosh, I just think that the idea of coming together as a community. And this idea of a village, I think, in the death and dying realm, it will look so different to everyone. So I'm not, I don't have a particular vision of what that looks like, but 
people coming in and helping and people serving and, and holding hands and laughing and crying and telling stories and things like that. I think that may not necessarily be a formal cultural ritual, but I think that coming together as a community and allowing whatever it is that's there to be is something that has been lost. And that would be really beautiful to bring back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that idea of kind of almost showcasing your grief mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I always say like we never know what anybody's going through. And so all you can do, really the least you can do is not be a dick. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Very least. Yeah. But, you know, that's still challenging for us because we're we have egos and we're self-involved. And even when we try to be empathetic, sometimes we don't always hit the mark. And so totally. I love that idea of being able to say, like, I'm not at my best right now. And other people being able to connect with you, too. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, my friend said that she wanted to get a shirt that said, fuck off, my mom just died. Yes. Like, it's it's like funny. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, okay, yes. Anything you need, you know? Yeah. It's not the default because we all are going through our own things, but how wonderful to have that reminder that other people are, are going through a battle right now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that could really change the way that we look about grief too, because, um, and I've said this before, but I think that because we view death as such a sterile process and we view grief as something that you can do in five business days, um, there's not society is not prepared for what real grief looks like and so I take more than five days to grieve and guess what I'm still grieving you know and some days it hits me really hard and I just need to lay on the couch and watch a stupid movie like I just wish there was more understanding And it's my hope that as we continue to have these conversations and we continue to see the death work movement, that we will get to a point where we can be open and honest with our grieving and we can better support those who are grieving and give them the time and the space that they need, as well as the comfort and the community that they need. Yes. I keep, I keep visualizing, um, like coming up with different ways of touching like touching grief and touching death and um, whether that is hugging someone who's grieving and just letting them sob and snot all over you or not touching and giving them so much space to just let their wailing take up the room or the neighborhood, you know, and yeah. And in the dying process, touch, touch this person's hand, touch their shoulder, they're still there, right? It's real. It's yeah. really hard and it's real. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Maggie, we're coming up on time and I want to be respectful of your time because I could talk to you for That was so fast. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. uh, my one last question, um, I want to give you the chance to let us know how can we follow you and support the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you so much. Um so I, I do have an Instagram um, account. It's Life at Sunset. 
um, underscore Maggie. And um, I've loved that as just a way to be curious and explore and just get people thinking. Um, and then I have my, my LLC is called Life at Sunset. And so I try to kind of tier different ways that people can get involved. I host a weekly discussion group every Wednesday night. And this is on my website, lifeatsunset.com. It is donation-based, as you know. Um, technology is always asking for something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my goal on Wednesday nights is to talk about anything end-of-life related in a way that is of interest to people so people feel safe, they're taking little bites um, in a very manageable way. And then I also hold workshops. Um, my favorite one to teach is the Five Wishes workshop, where it's a five-week-long workshop, and um, people can talk through all the five wishes through this advanced directive document and really clarify goals and values. And, um, and more to come. I also do one-on-one -on -one sessions also listed on my website. But my, my primary goal is just to get people talking. So I think the best way to do that is through, like, Instagram and just engage and send me your questions and and send me your thoughts and beliefs and let's just start talking yeah yeah so thank oh, you for gosh. this opportunity to talk <laughs> of course I I was so excited when you were like yeah of course I want to come on oh gosh made yeah. me so happy um and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation so again I just want to thank you so much for for taking time to come on I feel like I've learned so much and I can't wait for everybody to hear this because it's going to be great. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. If you or someone you know is an angsty feminist like me and they literally want to wear their feminism on their sleeve, then you have got to check out Feminist Trash Store. Feminist Trash is founded on the belief that intersectional feminism and sustainability go hand in hand. They specialize in size-inclusive unisex apparel with hand-lettered designs by artist and founder Joanna. Each t-shirt is printed with biodegradable water-based ink and carefully made to order to minimize waste and ethically reduce any environmental impact. Their eco-friendly and 100% vegan t-shirts are designed to embody the meaningful conversations feminists are having in pursuit of a more empathetic and inclusive future. They want people expressing themselves in the ways that feel most sincere to them, without the perpetual silencing of preconceived racial stereotypes, sexual rigidity, and body shaming. Feminist Trash is committed to increased visibility for intersectional feminism. They're leveraging the power of community and sustainable fashion practices to mobilize a growing platform of diverse voices of intersectional feminist artists and independent feminist media creators from around the world. At Feminist Trash, they are committed to feminism that centers intersectionality, mutual aid, and actively pushes back against patriarchal, white supremacist oppression. That's why they've created Mutual Aid Mondays, where every Monday their profits will be distributed to a different mutual aid or community organization that upholds feminist, anti-racist, and queer inclusionary foundations. They source products and fabrics from ethical brands and suppliers who comply to labor, environmental, and safety standards. Go to FeministTrash.com and enter code KellyShopa, that's K-E-L-L-Y-S-H-O-P-P-A, at checkout to receive 20% off your order. And start wearing your feminism on your sleeve.